Welcome to Bible Study. This is Nick Rita, your host. Thank you for tuning in. We are very happy to have you with us today. We are continuing on our Bible study on death and dying and future hope. Today we are going to look at the biblical worldview. Our panel for today, thank you for joining us, Jerry. Lovely to be here, Nick. Joe, it's good to have you with us too. Thank you, Nick. It's always a pleasure. Ken, welcome back. It's good to have you part of this discussion today. Thank you, Nick. Seems a long time since I've been here, but certainly happy to be back again. Denise, it's good to have you part of the discussion too. Thank you, Nick. It's a privilege to be here. Will, thank you for joining us. Again, I feel as if I'm in good company, Nick. Thank you. Lija, it's good to have you part of the panel too. Yes, thank you. I'm very glad. Praise the Lord for that. And Len, thank you for uh, being with us today. In particular, Len, because uh, you prepared this Bible study and you're going to facilitate the discussion. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you for that lovely smile, Nick. And hello, listeners. All right, Len, um, I would like to just uh, hand it over to you and please uh, take us through this uh, discussion today. Okay, well, listeners, according to sociologists... The modern trend in society is towards increasing polarization. Factors driving the division in society include social media, wealth or the lack of it, politics and religion. With regard to religion in current times, it's not so much what one believes, but how fervently one holds those beliefs. The modern trend in society is towards secularism in opposition to what the Bible teaches. Since early times in Earth's history, there's been a controversy raging between good and evil, between God and Satan. And in these modern times, the enemy of truth is influencing people to reject God and his authority. And this week, we will explore the relevance of the biblical worldview and how it relates to the mission of the church. But before we embark in this study and this panel discussion today, we want to invite the Lord to lead us. And Ken, would you do that for us, please? Certainly. Heavenly Father, As we gather here today to put your word forward, we pray for all those listening that they may be moved to search deeper into your word as found in the Bible, that they may find many of the treasures you have put there, not only to know you better, but to be like you in the form of Jesus, see the rewards of following your ways and your commandments, to understand the times we live in, to know that the return of Jesus according to your word is at the very door. And time is running out for salvation. Your word warns us to seek the Lord while he may be found, because you have told us in Revelation that your spirit has been removed from this earth as it falls deeper and deeper into sin. As in the days of Noah, your word is going out to all mankind, warning them, pleading with them to get on board the ark, because a great flood is coming, a flood of lies and deceit that will wash away all those who have not accepted Jesus. 
Help us, Lord, to reach all these, all those who would listen, so they too can be saved. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Ken. Well, we're talking about the biblical worldview. So what does the term worldview mean? Yeah, worldview, I've got a an idea of worldview. I've got uh, two definitions, if you like. The first one is a worldview is a collection of attitudes, values, stories and expectations about the world around us, which inform our every thought and action. So that gives you a bit of an idea of worldview. There's another uh, definition, and uh, that's found in the Collins Dictionary, and it says there, a person's worldview is the way they see and understand the world, especially regarding issues such as politics, philosophy, and religion. Yes, I suppose a person living on a remote island somewhere would have a worldview that includes merely survival. And that colours everything they think about, whereas somebody living in a Western country who doesn't have to worry too much about survival has a quite different attitude to life. And what you said, Jerry, is, uh, is very true because your worldview colours your thinking and your actions. So according to the Bible, what trends in society becomes evident as the world nears its end? Well, Lynn, when I look at Second Timothy chapter 4, uh, I'd like to read from verse 3 to 4, if I may. And this is found, this is from the NIV version, and it says, For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. So that's what's happening. It's a rejection of truth and a belief in myths or untrue stories. Myths? Come on now. Isn't this an age of increased knowledge and easy access to knowledge? What myths could possibly prevail in our times, Will? There are a lot of them, Len. We have been concentrating on one, that we can talk to the dead or perhaps the theory of evolution, the origin of life, that man has gradually evolved from primitive life percolating in prehistoric slime, and that he doesn't emerge complete and complex from the hand of a creator. In fact, another myth is that there is no God, that he is a myth and a figment of really uneducated minds. Another myth is that... uh, There is no such thing as absolute truth. You just determine your path by what the majority believes. So truth is not absolute, but relative to the circumstances. And interestingly, 40% of Americans agree in a survey. Of course, this naturally leads us to another serious misconception, that the Bible itself is a compilation of myths, they say. 
and that has little value in strengthening the fabric and morality of a nation. Religion, they say itself, is for the unenlightened. And further afield, man has the ability to save the planet from becoming uninhabitable. That science, and not a so-called God, is the key to a better world. It's the attitude, if it's broken, we'll fix it. An inbuilt morality and technological sophistication can take care of any problems this world can be confronted with. Another myth, perhaps, is the medical science has the potential of making us live forever. That science will soon outpace unhealthy practices. Another myth, though, that man is accountable only to himself. A belief that in the end, self-preservation is the key, key to happiness. It's what we've heard proverbially as uh, me, myself and I. That should be the very reference point to life itself. Well, I think the sum of it all then, the panel is, when you let go of the source of truth and the source of wisdom, then you're left nervously clutching at straws and tufts to save yourself from falling. Will, would you mind just repeating that last little statement? When you let go of the source of truth, could you just repeat that? I think that's very, very important. Yes, I think when you let go of the source of truth, the source of wisdom, you're left clutching at straws and tufts to save yourself from falling. Yes, well, we sometimes think we're pretty sophisticated these days. We've got all this technology and access to information. But it's quite interesting, and you've explained that very well, that there are so many people hanging on to myths these days instead of the word of God. Well, now, Joe, according to the words of Christ in Matthew 15, at the end of the age, there'll only be two classes of people on earth. Yes, the Bible does speak of two groups at the end. And let me read from Matthew 25, 31 to 33. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. So we see here the two groups. They are the sheep and the goats, the saved and the unsaved. And it appears that it is a process of sorting, a sort of judgment separating the sheep from the goats. It wasn't unusual for this to happen at the end of the day in Jesus' time and probably still goes in, goes on in similar communities. While sheep and goats grazed in the field together happily, they would be separated at the end of the day, and hence Jesus uses this metaphor to teach. The passage, if we read on, goes on to say, and I just will pick out, it says that, he says, for I was, he speaks to the sheep who are the saved. And he says, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger. You invited me in. So forth, so forth. And then likewise to the other group, the goats who are not saved, 
he tells them, you did not do any of these. They just lived a life of to please themselves and gratify their own desires. And so clearly the two groups may spend their lives side by side, and yet there is a fundamental difference between them. One lived to serve others and please God, and others care only about themselves. And we know that the Bible says at the end of time, when Jesus returns, there will be a separation. God will separate the two, and there will be a polarization, as has been mentioned. There will be two camps, the sheep and the goats. So you're really in sharing that, and that's from Matthew chapter uh, 25, It's really outlining the distinction between two worldviews in modern times. The sheep represent those who want to serve God and do the things that God recommends and wants people to do. And the goats represent the people whose worldview is, well, I want to have the greatest pleasure I can get out of life. Would you agree with that, Joe? Yes, yes, I would. All right. Well, now, we have a perfect model in the person of Jesus. What does the Bible say about him? Well, the Bible does not portray Jesus as a man in a boy's body. Uh, He was still a child, and he wasn't born with the understanding and maturity of an adult. And I'll read what Luke uh, 2 verse 40 says. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was on him. In verse 52 it says, And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So he was completely unlike other children in the sense that he was not reckless, rebellious, impatient, selfish. You know, I could go on about the beauty and symmetry of his character, but I think the Bible tells it in in a, in a nutshell. So even as a child, he was developing this worldview to be godly and good. All right, well, looking past Jesus' childhood, when Jesus was an adult, during his ministry, what did Jesus do, Lydia? As we read in Matthew chapter verse 23 it says Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people so Jesus was touching people in a spiritual way in a physical way to restore in man the image of God, the maker, and uh, to bring him back to the perfection in which he was created, to promote the development of the body, mind, and soul. So this is the work of redemption that Jesus was done on earth. It's no wonder Jesus was popular. I have read some lists, uh, seen some lists, I suppose would be better to say, about who Which professions are the most popular in our times? And probably heading the lists is firemen because they protect people's property, particularly when it starts to burn. Doctors are pretty high on the list. Uh, There are some 
people very low on the list too. They reckon second-hand car salesmen don't rate very well. But Jesus went about doing good, and that was because part of his worldview was to please God and to be good to other people. Well, in all of this that Jesus did, how much money did he make, Ledger? None. He didn't make any money. His ministry was of goodness, unselfishness, and holiness. He loved people. He, yes. loved people. he didn't do it for the money. No. He did it because of the goodness that was within him. Now, Ken, what would you like to say about this? Well, if we recognise that a human being is an integrated and indivisible person, then we cannot restrict our religion to spiritual matters only. The truth actually embraces our whole being, covers our entire lifespan, and comprises all dimensions of our life. Our physical and spiritual elements are so powerfully integrated that they cannot be separated. And though as fallen beings, we will never be equal to the depiction of Jesus as presented above, we are by God's grace to emulate it because to restore in man the image of his maker. So here we see that the very simple plan that as human beings, we are to try to be as much as Jesus as possible. Yes. Yes, Nick. I was just going to say that, um, you know, as we approach and we talk about uh, two different worldviews, but today we are talking about the biblical worldview. Can you have a biblical worldview and still not understand the ministry of Jesus? Look at different things from your own perspective with the Bible in your hands. And this could be very tricky because... Uh, Particularly in the days we live, we are so tempted to form a worldview on our own uh, understanding. And I believe it's very dangerous. We should, if we uplift the Bible, if we are Christians, we should follow what the Bible says and look at Jesus as the uh, model of everything in our life. Yes, it's very good advice. It reminds me of uh, what Queen Elizabeth said in her 2008 Christmas address. She said the world would do well to follow the teachings and example of Jesus Christ. Well, that statement got her into a lot of trouble, but she never did retract it, and I admire her for that. Well, my summary of the prevailing two world views is this. Firstly, there is the philosophy of eat, drink and be merry, or tomorrow we die. That simply means living for self. Secondly, there is the worldview of being prepared and faithful to the Lord because Jesus is coming soon to take his faithful people home. What about caring for our health? Does the Bible give any counsel regarding caring for our health, because caring for our health also is part of well, our worldview. Well, the Bible, biblical counsel given is found in 1 Corinthians, and in chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, 
It says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And in verse 31 of 1 Corinthians 10, it says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Why, one might ask? Well, God knows that we can be happier, better people if we are healthy. Good health enables us to live our best life or a much more fulfilling life than if we are encumbered with poor health. God wants us to be happy and healthy. And holy, if I could add that. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Now, <clears throat> Joe read 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 today, and there were some reasons given for caring for our health. What are they? Yeah, there were two reasons, Len. Um, the first one was that our bodies are considered to be temples, so dwelling places of the Holy Spirit where the Holy Spirit comes in to dwell and to live. And the second reason is that we were bought with a price. So Jesus shed his blood for us to redeem us from our sins. So there are two important reasons why we should try and look after our our bodies. All right. Well, that's probably in opposition to... Um some of the ideas we've been discussing over the last few weeks about when you die, you go straight to heaven or straight to hell. Here, we're given reasons for caring for our bodies to honour God and, as well as that, to have a good life ourselves. Now, Jerry, we're coming back to this idea we've been discussing earlier if a person is immediately translated to death, is there any reason to take care of our minds and bodies? Well, then the short answer is no. And the, and the longer answer, if I can elaborate, is that if we only fully are fully restored or transformed immediately after we die, rather than being progressively restored into the image of our maker while we are living life here on earth, then there's no motivation or reason to take care of our body and mind. Why live a disciplined life rather than eat and drink and do whatever you like if it makes no difference in the end? Okay, well, that question is left floating in the air. So do you want to answer the question yourself? Well, I, I believe that it does make all the difference how you live and how you prepare. And the Bible is full of instruction that we here is here is the, the time when we should be preparing for heaven as it were let's not forget that um, in philippians it says that it is god who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure so if we submit to god's molding influence if you like if we allow his spirit his holy spirit to transform us then Every part of us is being prepared, is being transformed whilst we're living here on earth in preparation for our life, our future life. So we can't just, we can't just have the attitude, well, I can live as I please. And, um, because my soul is immortal and this body is simply a vehicle to get me from A to B. And 
when I am translated, when I am, when the Lord comes back and he takes me to heaven, then I will be transformed. That's not the way it works. That's back to front. I think it's here. And the Bible makes it very clear here, as has been said already in Corinthians, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Here is where we need to undergo the change so that when the Lord returns, it is the finishing touch. We are being progressively changed from glory to glory whilst we are living here on earth. Well, thank you for that very good answer. In my opinion, of course, there are many reasons for people to care for their bodies. Some of them, some people like to achieve. They know if they care for their bodies, they can achieve more, particularly athletes. Uh, other people just want to be healthy. But part of being a Christian, that is part of a Christian's worldview, is to honour God by how they live, which includes looking after their health. Now, Will, there's another aspect, more than just physical, about caring for our bodies, and it's found in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. And in there, there's a phrase, and if you could perhaps answer the question, what does it mean to let this mind be in you? Yes, certainly, Len. I I was living in Cape Town years ago when the first uh, heart transplant in the world was made by Dr. Christian Barnard at the Grotteskir Hospital. And I can remember the the tremendous excitement worldwide that a person could get a new lease on life by a transplant. Of course, we all know that organ transplants have dramatically enhanced the lifestyle of formerly really limited abilities, uh, people with limited abilities. And the transplant of a heart of flesh to replace a cold heart of stone in uh, Ezekiel 36 is code language for a renewal of the mind. And we can only imagine what a figurative transplant of the mind of Jesus into us could do. Imagine doing, relating, and reacting to daily circumstances exactly the way that the Saviour would have. Would That would be key to our happiness. You know, Joe hinted on the symmetry of his character, his purity and his unselfishness, his committed obedience, and the honour he had for his Heavenly Father. I really desire that kind of transformation. And so let's listen to a text in Philippians 2, verses 5 to 8. It says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset or mind as Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Humility, purity, wonderful attributes. 
And I think this is the sort of mindset or the mind of Christ I would love to have trans, trans, uh, planted into my mind, uh, Len. Yes, well, if Jesus did not have that mind, there would be no hope for us all. When it came to the point, what shall we do about this sin business, if Jesus said, I'm not going to do anything about it, they can bear their own consequences, there'd be no hope for any of us. But he went all the way, and I mean all the way, to the very point of death, serving others not serving him himself. So the Bible actually outlines two great worldviews that exist today. And Ken, would you like to answer this question for us, please? Certainly. We see in Romans 12 and verse 2, it says, Do not confirm to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good pleasing and perfect will. We see also in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 to 16, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritually judgeth all things Yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So basically what what has been said here is that the natural man does not accept the things of God because they are folly to him or silly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. But those of us who have accepted Jesus and have received the Holy Spirit, these things we are able to understand, and it is our pleasure to do them as best we can for the Lord. Yes, thank you, Ken. Now, Jerry, would you like to build on that and answer the question, what mindset or what worldview should be part of true Christianity? Yes, thanks, Lynn. Just following on. Uh, what Ken said. I've got two scripture references. The first one is found in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, where it says, Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. So what are these things above? And the answer is found in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, where it says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, Whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. And I've got one more, actually, that I'd like to squeeze in there, if I may. It's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, where it says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So why I've mentioned that is we're all familiar with the expression by beholding we become changed. It it changes us. If we 
focus on the love of Jesus and his beautiful character as seen in the Gospels, we will become like him. So there's very good advice as to how we should train ourselves, discipline ourselves to become like Jesus. Where is your focus? That's the big question, isn't it? What are you, what are you focusing on? And what you focus on most of all is what you become like. Yes, that's a very good point you've just made there, Jerry. I have um, heard from time to time about people who spend a lot of time watching um, films or programs on television where there's a lot of violence. And some of them uh, uh, commit these copycat crimes. They may see it on the screen and decide to do it themselves. And whatever we focus on will probably determine what we will be like. Now, Will said a moment ago about Jesus and what he was like, and I feel very much myself, and I'm just giving a little personal testimony here, to have a pure mind with pure thoughts and to have pure actions that result from it. So that's very, very good advice. Now, Ledger, given that Christians also have a sinful nature, are there any lifestyle practices that can help maintain the renewing, the changing from carnal to righteous? Are there any practices that can help maintain a renewing of one's mind? Yes, Len, we will always be sinful creatures until Jesus comes. But if we are in Christ, if we uh, unite with him, the purity, the, his love, his meekness, his truth is controlling our lives. And uh, being in, 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 a, in a contact, permanent contact with Christ by a daily surrender, a daily debt to self, a daily determined effort by faith to be obedient to Jesus, by systematically making it a practice to please God, a transformation can develop in our lives, being like Christ. And as Ken mentioned uh, before, we will be transformed by the renewing of our minds by the renewing of Christ's mind in our minds. Yes, really what you were saying, that it needs discipline, some sort of discipline and a daily practice of denying self and surrender to Christ. It's not a hit and miss thing. It's a continuous process that goes on in a Christian who's developing a nature more like the nature of God. Well, Joe, there is a philosophy prevalent among certain Christians that one, uh, when somebody has accepted Jesus, there's no need to make any further personal effort to maintain or grow our Christianity because Christ does it all for us. Do you believe that? And what reasons do you have to support your belief? Well, Lynn, there are there are many angles to this, um, and I'll just consider one or two. 
There are some who believe that once you have accepted Jesus as your saviour, it doesn't matter what happens afterward. Once saved, you are always saved, no matter how you live your life. Now, sadly, this dangerous teaching contradicts scripture and is commonly used to justify sinful lifestyles. Once saved, always saved appeals to the most ungodly tendencies of our human nature. Uh, it legitimizes sin. It gives false comfort to sinners and creates a barrier between the sinner and repentance and hence a need or desire to change. Another variation of this is um, once I have made a commitment to God, I don't have anything further to contribute. Jesus does it all. Well, God has left choices for us to make that only we can make, and we need to make them to follow him. God cannot make these choices for us, and these choices that we make on a day-to-day basis reveal whether we are his or not. Yes, we make mistakes, um, and that is to be expected because we are sinful, but God won't do for us what he has left for us to do. And it is a it is a cause for reflection. Am I following God in the choices I make or am I fooling myself? Now, I've got a couple of texts from Scripture to illustrate this. One comes from the Old Testament and one from the New. Now, these are not the only two. Um, they're numerous texts. This one comes from Ezekiel 18.24. However, if, uh, if righteous people turn from their righteous behavior and start doing sinful things and act like other sinners, should they be allowed to live? No, of course not. All their righteous acts will be forgotten and they will die for their sins. Pretty pretty strong words there in Ezekiel. And another one from Matthew. This is Jesus speaking himself. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So when Jesus returns... There is a group, and I imagine they will be found among the goats, that say, Lord, Lord, and he says, I never knew you. Now, clearly, this unfortunate group thought they were in a saved relationship with Christ, but were sadly deluded. Christ never knew them, and indeed, they probably never knew him. So, in a nutshell, once saved, always saved, is a lie, very similar to the one, ye shall not surely die. Thank you. That was... uh very well explained and I think it's important for us all to realize that our lives as Christians should be a developing life. If we were to draw a graph of our lives, of course it would have a few bumps in it, accepting Christ, there should be an upward progression. However, the people who say, well, as soon as I'm saved, then I don't have to bother anymore, there would not be an upward progression. Ken, you wanted to add something. Yes, and I just wanted to say this is such an important point that Joel's just spoken about. I think many Christians don't really understand what heaven and all that is all about. And the thing is that once you become a Christian, the way I see it is that you're really starting an apprenticeship in a, in a sense, and God is preparing us. Uh, and all those people that have accepted Jesus, 
be able to live in the wonderful uh, place that he has uh, prepared for them. And to get to that place, you have to have the attributes of Jesus in turn he got from the Lord. So we have to be a special people and we have to uh, live our life a certain way so we will fit in and enjoy all the wonderful things that God has prepared for us. Yes. We mustn't forget that um, our adversary, Satan, the devil, is unrelenting in his attacks on people, and especially those people who wish to follow the Lord. So he doesn't back off simply because you've chosen to follow Jesus. Quite the opposite. Um, in fact, there's a, um, a text that is quite relevant for us living in the time that we do, so close to the second coming of Jesus. And I'd like to quote that, if I may, from uh, Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. It says, And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he was to make war with the rest of her offspring, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So we have to be alert as to what is going on. We have We can't rely on a decision we made who knows how long ago to follow Jesus and simply rest on our laurels, so to speak, fold our arms and say, everything's okay now, Jesus will take care of me. We have to live life one day at a time and recognize that, as I said, the devil is in hot pursuit of those who seek to walk with Jesus. And that, that shouldn't worry us unnecessarily because Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. But the point I'm trying to make is, is that we have to be um, daily connected with our Lord, daily growing in spiritual graces, daily growing in an understanding of what this is all about. And if we yes. if we do that, if we make ourselves dependent on him, he will provide whatever it is that we need in our walk from day to day. Yes, the opposite is also true. Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But we can leave him and forsake him. Yes, Nick. Jesus uh, um, spoke that I will write my laws into your hearts. You know, this is very significant because what that means, it means that we'll process things, we'll think about things. We will not just follow some codes, you know, some laws written there and say, okay, I have to do this because otherwise I'll get a fine, you know. No, you'll process, you'll think, you'll have a connection with God, a relationship with God and reason with God on all the aspects which come up in your life. I believe this is really important. And today in Christendom, we are falling into the temptation of either being legalists or dismissing the law of God, which both are extremes. What we need to do to understand what Jesus meant when he said, I will write my laws into your heart, which means you'll be connected with me if you, if you like to follow me. Yes, I was thinking while you were talking there, Nick, some people make their hearts pretty hard to write anything on. When I was a child, just beginning school, 
the headmaster wanted to uh, tell us a story and he had a blackboard and he didn't actually have any black chalk so he took a piece of carbon out of the middle of a torch battery and he was going to outline what he drew on this blackboard in black. Now I'd already tried that and I said to him that won't work and he looked at me with a scathing look but it didn't work and I suppose some people's hearts are not receptive to have God's law written on them. All right, now we have our part to play in developing a Christian character. But are we on our own, Denise? No, Len, definitely not. Um, when we look at John 16, verse 13, in the NIV version, it says, But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. So we're talking here about the agents, the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised to send when he returned to heaven to help his followers to live a spiritual life. There's another text in John 14, verse 26, that says, But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. And when we think about uh, accepting Christ and following him, we can't do that without the help of the Holy Spirit. Yes, and I believe very much too that the Holy Spirit urges us and urges anybody. When I say us, I'm using it collectively, not exclusively. Urges us to make decisions to honour and serve the Lord. Well, what else does the Holy Spirit provide, Ken? Well, we read in Acts uh, chapter 1 and verse 8, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And what it's saying here is that this power we're going to receive is really something we cannot see and I don't think we can feel it either, but it's something the Holy Ghost comes within us that are seeking Jesus and seeking the Lord, and it's to guide us, and it's to give us uh, power and confidence to witness to other people about Jesus, and it's soon be, it's soon be returning. But also, of course, the, whole, the Holy Spirit does many other things as well. Uh, when it comes into our heart, it convicts us when we're doing wrong, because as human beings, we're naturally sinful, and it's not our way to do the right thing, but the opposite, we tend to do the wrong thing. But the Holy Spirit there is our guide and comforter, and it gives us this ability to share the gospel with others, which is a command Jesus has given to all those who would follow him. Yes. Yes, I agree with that. The Bible tells us quite clearly that not only does the Holy Spirit lead us into truth, but gives us power, power to speak up for the Lord, gives us the words to say, the thoughts to think. All right, well now, many people believe very much in having a spirit-led life. Does the Holy Spirit lead anyone away from or to disagree with God's written word? 
the Bible. As we read in Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, it says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So as we as we've seen previously, as everyone says that the power of the Holy Spirit pours out his love, leads, guides, empowers. So the Holy Spirit never guides anyone away from God's word, but rather he goes into the children's of God hearts uh, and guide them by the Holy Spirit in, in into all the truth of God's word. Okay, if anyone does something and said the Spirit told me to do such and such, and if it's in opposition with what the Bible teaches, you can draw the conclusion that it wasn't the Holy Spirit who uh, motivated the person to do that. So the Christian life's like an athlete training for an event. What's the goal that we as Christians should be preparing for? Len, um, I believe we all have goals in our life and we approach different ways to reach those goals. But we are talking today about uh, a biblical worldview and we need to understand what's God's perspective on this. I just want to touch what Lydia just um, said uh, before and particularly uh, quoting from uh, uh, Timothy. 316, 2 Timothy. You know, that become one of my favorite uh, verses along with John 316. And my dear friend listening today, if you want to remember that verse, it's 316, like John 316. You know, it's important that God loves us so much that he gave his son. But at the same time in Timothy 316 says that the whole scripture speaks about him. And it's important for us to check that, not to create for ourselves a religion or a belief which uh, picks up only certain things in the Bible. But let, let me just uh, answering that question. And probably I will, I will love to uh, read uh, um, a passage in the Bible from John chapter 14 and um, starting from verse 1. It says here, do not let your heart or your hearts to be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will be always with me where I am. And you know that way where I'm going. I read from uh, New Living Translation, and you can check uh, other translations too, but you notice here that Jesus says, would I have told you that I'm going if, if you know, uh, um, this is not certain? The goal, Len, for each one of us, is to trust in God's words and promises. 
that what we should have the goal, not the goal of achieving under our our own understanding things, even religiously, even in our relationship with God. We should trust what God said and apply in our life. That's my goal. Okay, well, my goal goes a little bit further than that. My goal is to be ready for Jesus to come. Apart from that, all the other stuff, if uh, if there's no climax to it, then I don't see the real point. Denise, is there anything in addition to Christ's return? Yes, Lynn, um, there certainly is. And the Bible talks about it in Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 13. So not only is Christ returning, but in verse 13 it says, but in keeping with his promise, that's the promise of his return, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So as well as Christ's second coming, he's going to provide us with a new heaven and a new earth where we can live with him and with the other people who want to serve him and who have been rewarded. In eternal peace and happiness. With no sin. No sin. Be a kingdom of righteousness. All right, well, the last question I want to uh, put to you today, I address to you, Will. When should anyone choose to prepare for the return of Jesus and why? Can I answer this with a text, Second Corinthians 6, verse 2. It says, For he says, In the time of my favour I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. I love what uh, the prophet Joel says in Joel 2 verse 12. The Lord says, turn to me now while there is still time. Yes, it's dangerous to put off the preparation of your life for a later day. That day may never come, your life might be cut short, or you might get so used to pleasing yourself that um, when that day approaches, you won't want to be ready. The great controversy between good and evil is rapidly heading toward a conclusion. Satan and his followers are doing their best to turn people away from God because they know their time is short. All they have to look forward to is total annihilation. And theirs is a short-term view, worldview that is, to get what they can from life. For them, there's no more after they, they die. On the other hand, is the God-in-your-life worldview. It entails the long-term and includes living in a perfect environment in the literal presence of God, where there is no sin or corruption for eternity. The two worldviews of serving God and serving oneself contrast with each other. And we, listeners, as your panel members today, have made our choices. We intend to serve the Lord and remain faithful to him as long as we live and then receive his promises 
But what about you? Do you live for the here and now? Or is there a greater dimension in your life to live for eternity? And that's the challenge we leave with you today. It's all very well to listen to discussion and so on, but you need to make a decision to honour and serve the Lord and receive the reward he has for you or to disregard God's claims in your life where and your future will be nothing. So let's close this uh, with prayer today and I invite Denise to pray for us and, of course, all the listeners. Thanks, Lynn. Let's bow our heads. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for what we've seen today in Scripture and for what has been discussed on the panel. We thank you that you are a God who loves each one of us, uh, no matter what we've done, that you are someone who provides a way of escape, that you have offered your Holy Spirit to give us um, power to increase our faith, to help us to live a Christian life, to help us to stay in contact with you. So I pray today that you will bless our listeners, that you will send your Holy Spirit to them to help them make the right decision and to help them live the Christian life uh, if that's what they choose to do. And I pray that you will bless all the panel members as well. And we thank you for your word, which is powerful. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit, which you send so generously if we ask you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, thank you, everyone, for um, your thoughts, uh, your participation today, sharing um, about the biblical worldview. My dear friend listening today, I really invite you to join us next time because uh, um, we are going to learn about uh, the judgment process. Is that a future hope? Join us and we are going to look into the Bible to see what the Bible has to say about this. Until then, may God richly bless you and have a safe walk in the footsteps of Jesus.